Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your patience is being rewarded today. It was not easy getting good martinis throughout this week, but today you get three of them. All three martinis today are good. And that's even on top of the fact that we're getting close on Tuesday to the release of Jim's latest thriller novel, Gathering Five Storms in the Dangerous Click series. So if you haven't ordered that, please do. You can also order the short story, uh, Saving the Devil, for just 99 cents. So we'll probably be talking about that a little bit on Tuesday or sometime next week. But uh, let's get into the good martinis today. And Jim, we were just talking yesterday about how the Republicans are finally inching ahead, although probably within the margin of error in the Ohio Senate race, which shouldn't be that hard for Republicans. Now we've got a state where the Democrats usually have yawners, and it's considered a toss-up, at least according to Larry Sabato's crystal ball over at the University of Virginia, and they're usually pretty darn accurate. So here's what they say. We're moving Oregon's open seat race from leans Democrat to toss-up, and this is the governor's race. This is despite the state's blue lean and the fact that Republicans have not won a gubernatorial race there since 1982. However, the state is hosting an unusual three-way race among a trio of women who are all recent members of the state legislature. Former State House Speaker Tina Kotek, Democrat, former State House Minority Leader Christine Drazen, R, and former State Senator Betsy Johnson, an unaffiliated former Democrat who is more conservative than most of the members of her former party and who has been backed by Nike co-founder Phil Knight. The race sets up an unusual situation where the winner may not need to crack even 40%. Additionally, the three candidates all serve concurrently in the state legislature, which should provide the campaigns ample opportunities to draw contrast. Outgoing Democratic Governor Kate Brown is deeply unpopular, so there might be desire for change. You got to think the ongoing insanity in Portland, Jim, is perhaps feeding into this as well, although that's not something the Sabato folks mention. You know, Oregon always seems a bridge too far. Nothing statewide ever seems to go well there in a very long time. But what do you think? I mean, the fact that this might just be a curious set of circumstances that could allow for a Republican victory. So I know it might be that people perceive things in a way that is worse for their side than they actually are. But if you are a right of center person, if you are a conservative, it certainly feels like the Republican Party is more often derailed and deterred and defeated by internal infighting than the Democrats are. Maybe I, I could be wrong. I, I'm sure, I don't know if anybody's really gone through and figured out how many times prim, you know, fights from the primary have ended up costing a party in the general election. The one that sticks out really clearly in my head. Uh, 2018, this is South Carolina's first congressional district uh, where my parents live. Mark Sanford, the former governor, who was a little bit infamous, uh, won, won the seat, and but had taken a couple of votes against Trump. And Katie Arrington uh, challenged him pretty much on the basis of I'm pro-Trump and you're not. It was an incredibly hard-fought primary, but Arrington won 50% to 46%. Many Republicans in this district believe that Mark Sanford then told his donors, his friends, his supporters, don't back her in the general election, vote for Joe Cunningham, uh, the Democrat. And Joe Cunningham won in what is otherwise a really Republican district in 2018. It was a really weird set of circumstances. Uh, you know, it's a, it, one of the last ones, I think it comes out of like R plus eight, R plus nine. And yet Joe Cunningham won. I think Joe Cunningham is currently running for governor of South Carolina and well behind Henry McMaster. But this is, you know, for two years, Democrats, you know, represented this district with Joe Cunningham. 
back in 2020, Republicans unified and all that stuff. But there are a lot of South Carolina Republicans, people in this district, who basically say Mark Sanford effectively sabotaged Arrington's bid uh, back then. You sort of think, why, why does this happen to Democrats? Why don't they see, you know, why do the progressives always get in line? Why do, you know, why, is there something about the collectivist mindset that makes them more willing to swallow their pride and not run third party candidates? I went back and I was misremembering because I thought Bowling had done the same against Cuccinelli in uh, Virginia back in 2013, I think it was. It was not, actually. He did not run an independent bid. But there were a bunch of people, I guess, preferred him and all that stuff. So we always really were the ones who are most hindered by clashes of egos and brood, people who believe that, no, no, I'm better. And if I'm not the nominee, well, I'm just going to run independent and I'm going to, I'll show you guys and I'll play spoiler and things like that. We may finally be seeing this at work in Oregon which is pretty fascinating. Although I do notice, I feel like every couple of years, you see a race, statewide race in Oregon that's a little bit closer than you'd expect. Not competitive. Now, usually it's a good Republican year and it's usually a couple percentage points out of range and, you know, it involves a flawed Democratic candidate and, a, you know, better than usual Republican candidate. Look, I wouldn't count on this, but this would be a very pleasant surprise for Republicans and one worth keeping an eye on. Uh, in this cycle. And if this is, by the way, a, you know, allegedly a, a red wave Republican year, uh, I'm thinking back to 2014 when Larry Hogan won in, in uh, uh, Maryland and really not people, many people were expecting that. Um, uh, Rauner winning in Illinois a couple of years earlier. It was usually some blue state that has a big Republican win that nobody saw coming. And this looks like one of the stronger opportunities uh, for this to be for this to be that one of those kinds of races there, Greg. Well, I, I hope so. I have to say I don't know it really anything about any of these three candidates, although I am willing to go out on a limb for our 24 fans, Jim. The Republican nominee, Christine Drazen, I assume is not related to Victor Drazen <laughs> or either of his sons from the first season. So I, I I'm going to say with deep confidence she's not tied to uh, uh, terrorist organizations in the Balkans. Greg, that was a deep cut all the way down to the artery. <laughs> Going into the way, way back machine for that one. But I, I applaud that. Uh, and I love Dennis Hopper. But man, that was the worst accent I've ever heard. That was so bad. You yeah, go back but, and but he always works as a villain because in the end, we're afraid that he might actually... He's not actually a Drazen. He's actually just Dennis Hopper. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, he's deliciously evil in speed. Uh, as the villain and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic actor. But yeah. We finally watched that with, uh, with my sons. And as I said to the boys, the scariest part of this is that uh, he didn't even know they were filming. This is just the way he acts. <laughs> you know, that movie was uh, referred to as Die Hard on a Bus. I'm not willing to give it that high of marks, but it was a pretty good movie. Pretty good movie. Anyway, uh, let's talk about our second good martini and Jim. One of the things that is going well for the economy right now is the job situation. The monthly uh, employment reports and unemployment reports uh, uh, remain pretty strong. The big problems, of course, uh, are the fact that there are millions upon millions upon millions of jobs that are unfilled and need to be filled, like we were talking about yesterday. And, of course, uh, the massive inflation rate uh, happening uh, that's affecting Americans as we buy just about anything. But when it comes to the job recovery that the Biden administration keeps taking credit for, 
Uh, the red states are the ones in the lead. In fact, 12 of the top 15 states are led by Republican governors, and that includes 11 of the top 12. Uh, Utah leads the way with 168.4% uh, of their jobs recovered. So they not only made up for all the ones they lost, but uh, then uh, some more. Idaho is next, then Texas. North Carolina's fourth. They have a Democratic governor, but their legislature is Republican. Then Florida, Montana, Arizona, Georgia, Tennessee, Arkansas, South Dakota, and South Carolina before you finally get Colorado at 13. Indiana, Republican again at 14, and Nevada, the Democrats at 15. So, uh, Jim, my math is not fantastic, but that's 80% of those uh, top states are led by Republicans, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, look, we've seen this story taking place you know, pretty consistently over the last two decades or so. Now, let's recognize, not all states are created equal, and certain states are going to have certain advantages in terms of geography, in terms of climate that other states don't have. Uh, you know, certain tech companies in California or Hollywood film productions, they can move pretty easily. If you wanna start filming stuff in Vancouver, you can do that. If you wanna move your tech company to Austin, you can do that. If you have a farmland in the Central Valley, well, you can't really move that, right? Um, it's not gonna, you know, the good weather that California is able to enjoy cannot be easily replicated. If you're down South, you're gonna have heat and humidity. If you're up in, you know, Northern states, you're going to have much colder winters. Your state is what it is. And, you know, certain certain economic activities are just going to be available to some parts of the country and not others. No matter how hard Wyoming tries, it cannot be a leader in transoceanic shipping because it's not a coastal state, right? So some of this stuff is built into what your state has and what it can actually do. But a state's policies can make a difference in terms of how uh, the state fosters the, the economic growth. Does it attract jobs? Does it attract other businesses to relocate? Does it create an environment where it's easy to start a business? And does it create an environment where it's easy for your business to grow? And by and large, and I'm sure you can find some exceptions, but by and large, red states have done a better job at this. And we see this not just in where businesses are relocating. We're also seeing this people voting with their feet. You see this in the Census Bureau. Yes, there are exceptions, but by and large, it is the red states that are growing. And it's particularly the blue states in the Northeast that are uh, struggling, that are losing population, that are losing, a, you know, their proportion of U.S. population is shrinking. Look, it's called the Rust Belt for a reason. I'm not saying that every, you know, I'm not saying all these communities are bad. I hope your place, if you live there, I hope your place is, your, your, where you're living is thriving. But generally speaking, in aggregate, it's pretty clear that these states aren't doing that. And I think at some point, people should stop recognizing, the, oh, it's, it's just a coincidence. No, no, it really does something that places like New England and the, you know, New York and the upper mid-Atlantic mid and Illinois and some of the, you know, they've become places where it's harder to do business. Uh, some of the stories you hear out of California, you know, businesses say, we feel like the state is out to screw us every opportunity they can. It's like they don't want us to hire people. It's like they don't want us to grow and expand. It's like they want to put up as many regulatory obstacles to us as possible. And then they wonder why we're not growing more. And, and that's the philosophy at work there. And then they go to some place like Texas, like, oh my God, it's like night and day. At some point, the country should recognize this. I don't know how the 2024 election is going to shake out. If you ask me, which, you know, which potential scenario do I like best? I like the idea of Ron DeSantis being the Republican nominee. And I really love the idea, despite people might think he's tougher to beat, of instead of taking on Joe Biden or instead of taking on Kamala Harris, if DeSantis was taking on Gavin Newsom, and we could put this choice before the country, do you want the Florida model 
which is getting people to move there and getting the thriving economy and getting people to grow. And people are finding their happiness, finding prosperity, making the, what, what they want out of their lives there. Or do you like the California vision in which you're stepping in poop all the time? And which you can all, you know, the cost of living is incredibly high and it's impossible to build anything. And just, you know, crime is out of control. All these different ways, these two contrasting ways of what government should do and what it should prioritize. I love putting that option before the country because I think one, Republicans would win, but two, I also think it's good for the country to have this lesson. Not all state governments are built the same. Decisions have consequences. I don't think it's going to shake out that way. I think it's pretty likely. Yeah, I think right now it looks much more likely to have a Trump versus Biden rematch, although we'll see how it all plays out from here. But Americans, look at these you know, charts, look at these which states are thriving, look at which states are stagnating, and make your decision accordingly. All right, Jim, on to our final good martini now. And while some people on social media uh, were really gleeful about this, I tend not to be gleeful about people losing their jobs. Brian Stelter is going to be fine financially. He made a ton of money at CNN. I believe his wife has a very good job as well. So they're not going to be going through the couch cushions looking for money. And I'm sure he's going to be landing somewhere on the left very quickly with a new job. Uh, But nonetheless, it's good news that Reliable Sources is going away at CNN and that he is probably going away at CNN because, I mean, there was no show more Orwellian named anywhere than that show hosted by him. It was just simply a screed against Fox News, against Trump uh, constantly. It had nothing to do uh, with covering journalism from an objective perspective as it used to be when, or at least more so, when Howard Kurtz and and others have hosted that show. So, But before we uh, get to the analysis of this, Jim, we need to talk about a couple of Brian Stelter's greatest hits. Uh, First of all, and this made our year-end award season last year, was when he tried to uh, challenge Barry Weiss about uh, where the media has lost its mind and she had all sorts of receipts for him. Here's what she said. You write, there are tens of millions of Americans who aren't on the hard left or the hard right who feel the world has gone mad. So in what ways has the world gone mad? Well, you know, when you have the chief reporter on the beat of COVID for the New York Times talking about how questioning or pursuing the question of the lab leak is racist, the world has gone mad. When you're not able to say out loud and in public that there are differences between men and women, the world has gone mad. When we're not allowed to acknowledge that rioting is rioting and it is bad, and that silence is not violence, but violence is violence, the world has gone mad. When we're not able to say that Hunter Biden's laptop is a story worth pursuing, the world has gone mad. When in the name of progress, young school children, as young as kindergarten, are being separated in public schools because of their race, and that is called progress rather than segregation, the world has gone mad. And then, Jim, my personal favorite is when he treated Michael Avenatti as a serious presidential contender for 2020. Looking ahead to 2020, uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. So with all that as background, Jim, what do you make of uh, CNN's decision? Are they actually trying to go back to or at least pretend to be doing straight news again? And what do you make of the stelter years at Reliable Sources? Well, the first thing is, is that the new management wants to go in a very different direction than the Jeff Zucker years. And I think the Jeff Zucker years were terrible for CNN, for news and journalism in general, for the country. Um, this was, you know, there are certain personalities, most notably uh, Chris Cuomo and I think Brian Stelter, who were seen as Jeff Zucker's guys, who were 
embodying his approach. I think you probably could put Jim Acosta in this uh, as well. It was not actually great for the ratings. Um, it's certainly also, I think it's probably even more deleterious for the reputation of CNN. And I'm glad you mentioned Howard Kurtz because I think this is one of the things that bugged me the most. By the way, I'll pause and just make the observation. Every now and then Brian Stelter would either like or retweet something I had tweeted. And I had the impression that he read me regularly. This is very awkward because I don't like what Brian Stelter did on his program. I don't like his approach to his beat. I don't like really much of anything. It was nice that he read me. I'm glad he did. He clearly never took much of it to heart. Um, but so uh, it was one of those things where every now and then he would say, good job. And I would say, please stop helping. Um, <laughs> as as uh, Sting sang, don't stand so close to me. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Stelter, I, and maybe I'd feel, if, if Brian Stelter just had something called the, the Brian Stelter show, maybe it would have irked me less. Um, I used to be on Howard Kurtz's show, uh, both on CNN and on Fox News pretty regularly. I'm on good terms with him. I don't have describe him as like one of my closest friends, but I feel Howard Kurtz always did at minimum a pretty darn good job in that role. Um, I remember, I think it was the, the New Republic way back in the day did a, a cover story kind of ripping him. And one of the things they ripped about him is that they said Howard Kurtz didn't do a good job covering controversies at CNN. Probably a fair hit, but I don't know if any reporter does a particularly great job at covering controversies at their employer. Uh, it's very tough to, to cover those sorts of things because you're on you're, you're dealing with the people you need to work with on a regular basis. Um, so I, I, if, if anything, I'll give him a pass on that one. I'm not saying I agree with everything Howard Kurtz had ever said, but I do think he tried to play it down the middle. And I think his show is pretty darn good uh, for that. He's doing a very similar uh, program over on Fox News at Media Buzz. When Stelter came in, uh, it became very clear that he was not interested in this. And sometimes he kept doing these segments like, oh my God, it's so bad. And then it dawned on me, he, like the things that I thought were so terrible about the way Stelter approached his job was in fact the point. That, that in fact, not only was it just, oh, it's not meant to appeal to me. Um, Stelter was kind of meant to be the guy who was pushing the Overton window. The, the awfulness was more or less the point of his program because in, in Jeff Zucker's vision, you, there would be this issue that would come forward and you, somebody would have to make the most extreme argument they could. And Brian Stelter's job was to jump on that grenade. His job was to be the one putting on the crash test dummy suit and offering the least plausible, most cliched, most unbalanced bit of lefty spin all on a program called Reliable Sources, right? So he could go on there and he could take this loony idea and inject it into the mainstream discussion. For example, I think you can say Donald Trump trashing the media all the time is not a universal good, right? There are bad consequences of that. Uh, but only Brian Stelter could go out and say, this is reminiscent to that of Hitler and Stalin. Right now, now I think you can say, considering what Hitler and Stalin did and the state of the press in Nazi Germany or Soviet, the Stalin era Soviet Union, I don't think there's a comparison there. If there's not a gulag, you really can't make that. But that was the job for Brian Stelter to do, was to take that asinine comparison and put it into the bloodstream to get people thinking about it. Um, there are a lot of CNN reporters who might ask questions of a Democratic official that are softer than we would like. But only Stelter and maybe Acosta would go to Jen Psaki and say, how can we do our jobs better? What, what do we understand least about the Biden administration? What's the, you know, all kind of stuff. He was a one man effort to push the Overton window in one direction. 
And as awful as he was, it often worked, or, or it worked well enough, I think. The Zucker vision was driving CNN into the ditch. It, it was not working. And I think that the thing I shared yesterday, which was fascinating, it must have been during the Trump years, after Trump had been elected, uh, there was a panel that looked like the National Press Club, and Stelter was on it with the retired, and I now realize, much-missed Ted Koppel. First of all, Greg, Ted Koppel's voice is one of the most distinctive in the world of television journalism. <laughs> and what was fascinating was watching him slowly laying out the breadcrumbs for Brian Stelter to follow until the bear trap snapped on him and <laughs> metaphorically decapitated him. Uh, by the end of it, Brian Stelter was insisting that it didn't matter to CNN if advertising revenue went down 40% uh, without Trump. And you could hear the audience laughing and not believing what Brian Stelter was saying. It was a fascinating display of um, uh, intellectual Godzilla versus Bambi. And <laughs> it was just kind of you know, like the degree to which you could see the befuddlement on Stelter's face when he realized the spin he was used to deploying wasn't working either on Koppel or on this thing. And you know, it also made me realize as much, I'm sure that you can find conservatives who are griping about Ted Koppel. I'm sure um, you know, there were times where Koppel said or did things that I would have disagreed with. But in the end, he was professional, he was smart, he thought things through, and he took, you know, he had genuine curiosity. And when he, something didn't smell right, he had a very good finely tuned BS detector and enjoyed poking that, you know, pulling that apart. Also a much more skilled interviewer than most people on TV today. So as much as we griped about the liberal press of a, of a generation ago, they were just way better at their jobs than this crew. And uh, so, you know, look, I, I don't have a great deal of personal animosity towards Brian Stelter, although maybe if he ever listens to this, he may disagree with that. Um, I, you know, I hope you wish, you know, he's going to live happily ever after and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I just think that he, what he was trying to do was not what Reliable Sources was about to do. Uh, but I'm sure he'll bounce back on MSNBC or something like that. Yeah, most likely. Uh, I think you're right for the most part about the previous generation being better journalists. But uh, the exception to that rule is another reason why reliable sources became a joke, because reliable means able to be relied upon, mm. perhaps trustworthy. And who did he have on all the time, Jim? Dan Rather. <laughs> like, that's the thing is that like for most of the media world, after Rathergate, Dan Rather became something of a persona non grata. You, you noticed NBC News didn't run out to get him. You noticed that uh, ABC did not rush out to get him as their anchor. I know he was working for some other small organizations, but he had taken a real hit below the waterline to his professional reputation. And it didn't mean anything to Brian Stelter. And he was part of this effort to rehabilitate Dan Rather into this respected elder statesman of journalism when in fact he had, you know, either fallen for a hoax or embraced a hoax. And long after it was obvious to everybody in the world that this was a hoax, Dan Rather insisted two plus two equals five. And, <laughs> you know, that's that's not what journalism is supposed to be about. That's, you know, that's exactly like he should be, you know, denounced and, and you know, thrown with rotten fruit at him every time he appeared on the program. Instead, Brian Stelter felt like, oh, my goodness, guys, great news on the program. Moses has come down from the mountain <laughs> with another two stone tablets. Let's listen in. You said Dan Rather took a hit below the waterline. Who delivered that hit below the waterline? I, I was one of many. I was one of many. And you see how much good it did, Greg. I managed to get him, you know, we, we hurt Dan Rather's reputation so much 
that Robert Redford played him in the movie, um, <laughs> making the second movie in a row, I believe, in which Robert Redford played an agent of the evil organization Hydra. <laughs> Spoiler alert for Captain America. Well, Jim, always great to uh, end the week on three good martinis, or any day we can have three good martinis, but this has been a week where we desperately needed them. So uh, glad to have them and a good way to enter the weekend. I will see you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Also, uh, thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Uh, Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, and please join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey guys, we know it's hard to keep up with all the news these days, but don't worry because we're here to talk about and laugh about it all. Biden and his administration are advertising 0% inflation. A.G. Garland basically said nothing in his statements about the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. And KJP has been fawning over Biden on television debuts. Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.